The following is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Hackey Reitman. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Different Brains. And it's not every day we get to interview real, real pioneers here. And my friend, Judge Ginger Lerner Wren, who's the pioneer who founded the first mental health courts right here in Broward County. Judge Ginger, welcome. Thanks for being here again. Hi, Dr. Hackey. It's so great to be here. I am absolutely thrilled to be back. And I can't wait to, you know, talk about so many things that have happened since our last interview. I think, what, about maybe five years ago? I, I don't remember. Time flies, and especially in these coronavirus times, oh, I've lost all sense of time. That's true. I would say, I don't even know what day it is half the time. Yeah. Um, and we have three, three things kind of happening at the same time here. We have the coronavirus times, okay? Yeah. We have everything going on in mental health, and along with somebody I know has a new book coming out. I hear rumors about. Okay. And the third thing was a news item just today uh, today, um, that has to do with mental health and the courts. And um, we'll get into that once we get, uh, we get rolling here. That's one of our, I'll just uh, tell, you, tell you in the audience, I, I just, this just came across the news files now, but it's very pertinent to what we're talking about a prominent Broward County, Florida, right here in Fort Lauderdale attorney, Robert Fenstershiv, um, his son, who is, uh, has mental health issues and drug addiction issues, uh, shot and killed him. And then took and, and died life. by suicide. And died by suicide. Yes, yes. I heard, I heard that on the news. Him. I read the article. Yes. This morning, you know, um, in the in the sun sentinel and you know i you don't you might not know this uh dr hackey but i also sit as a member of the executive committee of the national action alliance for suicide prevention so suicide uh right now as a matter of fact that's what i was writing on uh just before uh we we, we started this interview is very, very prominent really in my, you know, in my life on suicide prevention, um, just is, is just one of those real high priority subjects that everybody's talking about. Depression and suicide amongst the many, many different forms of mental health and neurodiversity issues that are magnified as though they're on steroids during these coronavirus times. It is, it is, you know, doctor, um, the combination, you know, of the social isolation, all of the uncertainty, and just not having our regular routines um, and we're just, just, in, and, and all of the disruption, you know, people, you know, young people that were going to go to college and, 
you know, looking forward to that, to that life and uh, all that. I mean, so many, so many dreams, right, have been interrupted. Yes, and uh, we're so fortunate, at least for the younger kids, that here in Broward County, we've been able to keep the Boys and Girls Clubs open. So at least there's a place where there's pods for learning, there's food, there's supervision. You know, awesome. the working moms and everything. It's uh, it's it's tough going now, and we're gonna gonna be seeing the effects. But let's talk about positive tools, the positive things we can do, um, and uh, let's start with tell us how your mental health courts and your job have changed during these virtual times, as you and I speak virtually here instead of in person. You know, I, first of all, I was so I was really hoping you would ask me something like that because, you know, right now I'm wearing my judicial robe because I'm gonna as soon as I hop off here, I'm gonna hop right into uh, my court, <laughs> my courtroom, my Zoom courtroom. So you can see that my virtual background is in fact my courtroom. Uh, again, you know, hoping that one day, you know, I do get. Back, but I have to say, you know, you are the one that I think when we were talking on a panel at Nova Southeastern University some years ago, you know, really spoke a great deal about technology. And, you know, what I noticed a few things about making this very sudden leap, you know, into technology, you know, for court purposes. Um, it really, I think, it, on the one hand, created a tremendous amount of positive opportunity. And that is that, you know, people that, you know, really, you know, need the ability to access, you know, get to their court hearings, you know, they don't have to worry now uh, about getting into a car or being around people or anything like that. They can, you know, they can use their phone, they can use their laptop, they can use their tablets. And, you know, all of a sudden there they are, they're in court. And it creates a dynamic which not only enhances the access, you know, to court process, but I think it adds, you know, a whole different paradigm you know, to the way we just handle, you know, the court, the courtroom over over uh, Zoom, for example, it's lighter. We have to be more flexible. You know, we could we could ask people because now we're all kind of close. There's like, we're, there's this closeness, I think in proximity to my computer or whatever it is and to the people, look at us, we're, we're like sitting side by side, right? And I can say, hey, to the lawyers, to the litig, how you doing? Tell me what's happening, right? How's your family? How are you feeling? You know, we can talk about resources available in the courtroom. We could share what's happening. And I, and I like the informality um, of the court process over technology, even more so, and I thought I was, it was pretty informal the way I would run my courts, 
coming from a therapeutic approach and really humanizing the court process, but I think there's an added quality over Zoom. What a great insight that is. I would not have thought of that. But when you think about it, it's a great leveling of the, of the playing field. And I've noticed that with our neurodivergent interns, now that they don't have to come into the office and go through that ajuna, you know. Yeah. Now they're much more comfortable. They're, when we have our meetings with about 12 or 15 of us, and uh, they're still interacting with other people. It's not the same as live. And yes, there are drawbacks, but what you just, you just uh, discussed is uh, very enlightening. I mean, I would not have expected that. I mean, think, if you really think about it, you know, just thinking about it, like from a, from a structural sense, typically, you know, people would walk into a courtroom, there'd be deputies, you, you know, I'd be sitting, judges are sitting higher on the bench. There's that big well area mm -hmm. that keeps us distanced. All of the formality uh, that a courtroom and a courthouse brings, and now we're just all in a box um, on a screen. And, you know, we could flip, like I was just at a United Way of Broward County Board of Governors meeting this morning and, you know, there were just, you know, I think there was, it was a very large meeting and here we are all looking and we're, this is going to age me, but we all look like the Brady Bunch, you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, that was, everybody had their little boxes and it, it's just a really fascinating interpersonal, I think, way of, um, of relating and um, in a court process, it does take down some of those barriers, I think. Now, are you able to do your full caseload during these virtual times? We're not, we're not. We're pretty limited in the county court. Um, I'm a county court judge, I'm a criminal court judge. So crimes up to everything, up to a year in jail. And right now we're not doing jury trials. We're not doing jury trials because the courthouse has not been open for jury trials yet. Um, there are some court functions going on, but juries, not so, not right now. Um, what is the biggest issue in mental health that you've been able to perceive from your perspective as the mental health court judge. What's well, I, sure. Well, I want to go, I want to circle back sure. to something you said earlier, because as a topic, it just has to be the number one topic right now. Uh, and that is the impact that the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, has had on uh, mental health, you know, in our community across the country and globally. So I think we always knew that, you know, mental health, for example, in our state, we're in Florida, you know, and in most states around the United States that, you know, there's always resource shortfalls, correct? Yes. We know that there's always stigma uh, surrounding mental health and that that is a barrier to care 
that we've had highly that we have highly fragmented systems of care and that we lack what we would call the capacity to really you know treat uh, people in terms of in terms of really meeting the demand for mental health that was pre covid-19 and here we are now in the midst of you know this the, this pandemic that has now brought on if you will a triple pan uh, crisis so now we have the existing uh, mental health crisis or suicide really suicide epidemic crisis um, we know we've also had an existing opioid crisis, correct? And so now it's really turned into everything rather conflating. Um, and I think that, you know, we have our essential workers um, that are experiencing, you know, their own problems on the one hand, and then we have people that are facing economic and financial insecurity, um, you know, hardship. Many have lost their jobs um, because of the closures. And so it is just a really, really challenging time in mental health that we have never experienced, I don't think, before uh, in our lifetime. Hmm. Well, Let's look at your new book and see if we can find any answers in there. Tell us about your new book. Do I have a new, it, did, do I have a new book? <laughs> your book, well, tell us about your, your book. Well, my book, my, my book, um, uh, which is, which is, I don't know if you can see this, but it, it, it's a court of refuge stories from the bench. But what I was writing um, actually is a chapter for a book um, that isn't mine uh, per se, but that I was asked to write like a introductor, an introduction. And this book um, is on criminal justice and suicide and why suicide prevention is so important to be integrated into the criminal justice system and we know it is uh, for so many reasons. How interesting. You know, the, uh, when I interviewed William Packard, who wrote a book on neurodiversity in the uh, justice system, in the prison system specifically, what was so interesting to me was not the unfortunate high numbers of inmates with various neurodiversities and mental health issues and autism and different different things um, but the corrections officers themselves and the rates there as you know are, are quite high for um, for suicide um, can you comment on the prison system at all well, you know, I can I can certainly say this that as you said, you know, the, the the data is such that, you know, more than half, you know, of individuals in our prison system suffer from, as you said, a whole range 
of mental health uh, disorders and other kinds of neurodiverse cognitive disabilities. And, you know, our prison systems are not, you know, equipped. They're simply not equipped uh, to be treatment uh, providers. And um, there really isn't any real rehabilitation uh, going on in, in prisons and that people, I certainly, you know, certainly the, the story of America's first mental health court in Broward County, uh, you know, was really based on a young man who went to, went to a forensic uh, jail or prison um, as a result of traumatic brain injury and was treated, if you will, you know, so, so negligently that when he was released, and this is the, the, the story of, of Aaron Wynn, that PBS Frontline called the unlikely savior of a new system of justice, you know, for the mentally ill, uh, in one of their early reports about the court, you know, when he was released, you know, there was no discharge plan. He had he, his parents that lived right here in Broward County, right in Plantation, Florida, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't effectively manage him at home. There was no housing, there were no hospital beds. Um, and he ultimately had an episode at a local grocery store, one of our popular chains here in South Florida, had an episode as he was checking out at the cashier. And the, the story, of course, and it's in the book, was that he ran uh, out of the store in a, in a panic and he tragically collided with an 85 year old woman who you know crashed onto uh, the pavement fell to the pavement and then ultimately died oh. of head injuries and now Aaron uh, was charged with murder and so this was back in 1993 and um, that really, that case led to a grand jury uh, investigation of Broward County's mental health system, which proved uh, in a 153 page report to be essentially deplorable. That's how the Sun Sentinel described at the time, Broward County's mental health system. Um, there really was no system. We had no wraparound services. So if you had a neurodiverse disorder, if you uh, were diagnosed with autism, if you were diagnosed with any kind of serious mental illness, you were pretty much out of luck. And now with coronavirus times, what I'm hoping has come about is that perhaps the forced use of telemedicine and telepsychology will increase the availability to all, to in prisons and everywhere else where, you know, people don't realize how big a thing transportation and logistics is. You know, it's... it's well it's, said, you know, I don't even know if we realized it. No, we didn't. It was it was thrust upon us, 
and now we do and that's why so many companies and so many institutions will never be going back fully to the way it was it's true dr hacky you know if if there is you know innovation out of desperation uh, I, I agree with you. I think that the telehealth, uh, telemental health, the new use of apps, um, you know, that this is absolutely um, the, new, the new frontier uh, in mental health because the early emergent studies that I've been seeing have been really, really excellent in terms of the effectiveness of telepsychiatry, uh, the effectiveness of tele-mental health, of the use of technology for the purposes of developing more, you know, a new form of a warm line that people don't necessarily even need counseling, but they do need someone to connect with, someone who is empathic, and someone who's supportive. And so I, I just think that because I've been, you know, I'm constantly looking at the research because I'm also an adjunct professor. And I want to stay up, you know, on what on the data, the data is looking really, really great. Although I have to say, that, you know, from a clinical vantage point, it's the psychotherapists now that are really starting, you know, to feel the pain of the burden of the workload. Do you see what I'm saying? That sure. they're just, that the demand versus the workforce supply uh, is so great that like any of these essential health workers, they're feeling you know, uh, the, that burden. It's very, very interesting. And, you know, it uh, reminds me of the old days uh, when, uh, when I, like, when I was chief resident in orthopedics at the Boston City Hospital, it was like a mass unit there. I mean, yeah. we had people coming in from all over, getting thrown off of roofs, car accidents, everything, and that constant. And here, now we have the constant of the mental health issues. We have the constant, it's a constant thing. You wanna remind our viewers here and our listeners of the uh, National Suicide Hotlines and other resources? Absolutely. You know, first of all, if you are in Broward County, you know, if you remember, or anywhere really in the country, if you remember nothing else, you remember 211. 211. Eventually, we're going to have nationally our own designated mental health three digit number. Um, that's going to be 988. But right now, that's not yet implemented. That's going to take a few years. So that is going to be so, so 211. Now, the 211 will get you right to the national suicide um, lifeline. So 1-800-TALK, I think 2733, I, I, don't, I wanna make sure I'm saying that right. But the National Suicide Lifeline, you know, um, is, is, you know, just incredible. 
They have uh, privacy lines for first responders. They have special counselors for veterans. You could hit a chat button. There's, there's wonderful resources um, you know, in place now uh, for anybody, anybody um, in terms of needing to talk someone. If you are a younger uh, person, all you have to do is go to the Jed Foundation for individuals that, uh, for the lesbian, gay, you know, um, bisexual, transgender community, you know, there's the Trevor, T-R-E-V-O-R project. So there's so many wonderful resources now. There's crisis text lines, um, but all, you know, no matter where you are, um, you know, it's, it's 211 or the National Suicide Lifeline, you know, will get you right to a crisis counselor. That's great. That's great information. Um, you know, you've, you've mentioned some particular part of our population is having a tough time is the LGBTQ population, the trans non-binary. Uh, can you comment on that population here in Broward County and some of your observations? Well, I can, and I think that, you know, there's so many, it, 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 to me, you know, it, it's extremely complicated in the sense that there's a lot of challenges that those, you know, that those uh, men and women have and, you know, that, that, you know, are very specialized and targeted to that area. And I think the first hardship is, you know, family alienation. So, for example, you know, you know, there's families that, you know, literally will not support, you know, their children, their adult, you know, teens, whatever, you know, in terms of if they you know, they come out and they, they're afraid to come out, you know, a lot of, a lot of these individuals and especially our, our, our teens and younger adults end up homeless. So, um, you know, that in and of itself, I think that type of alienation and then the cascading consequences of that, you know, really lead to some really, really you know, significant challenges. And then of course, I think the issue is, you know, you always want to talk to somebody who really gets you, correct? Yes. And I think that, you know, that's why it's really important. Like in Broward County, we have SunServe um, and the clinicians and, you know, the counselors and therapists at SunServe in Fort Lauderdale you know, that is their population. These are the people that they serve. And so from a cultural competency vantage point, because that's really what we're talking about, right? Cultural competency and really having that lived experience, whether we're talking about culture, race, ethnicity, cultural competency is, is everything. It's everything because when you, it's like anytime anybody goes to see a, a doctor, we want to be able to have a rapport, right? Yes. You want to have a rapport. You want to feel comfortable. You want to trust your healthcare provider. And I think we have to remind all our, all our viewers that mental health is health, right? It's yeah. no different than any other kind of healthcare mental illness, 
no different than any kind of physical illness. It, it's all health. And we really have to feel, you know, a good rapport with the people that, you know, are our healthcare providers. That's a very, very good point and often overlooked. How can our Different Brains audience learn more about you? Well, um, they could certainly, you know, just look me up, um, you know, on the internet. There's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, good um, blog posts that I've done over the years, both for Huffington Post um, and now for Medium. And um, there's on, on so many different subjects, you know, it's just so many different wonderful subjects and really about, you know, they, they do come from a, from an advocacy voice. Why? Because I am a, a, a judge who comes out of the um, civil rights, uh, disability rights space, you know, when I was a young lawyer and certainly on the bench in mental health court, I'm advocating to mitigate and eliminate stigma and shame and really make sure that everybody knows, you know, that you're entitled to dignity, right? You know, we all are, we all, you know, deserve love and we all deserve to live our dreams. And, you know, we, we, we must, we must, you know, understand that, you know, dignity really is the essence of, of justice. And I feel that, that that's a lot of what my, of the main themes uh, of my writing. Judge Ginger, what's the one thing society does not realize or understand about mental health? You know, society doesn't understand that mental health is as essential as all health and that we have to make sure that people get access to the health care that they need. Well, Judge Ginger Lerner Wren, it's been a pleasure to have you here yet again at Different Brains. And we thank you for your pioneering work in the mental health courts and all that you're doing. And keep up the great work. Thanks so much for being with us again. Thank you. Thank you so much again for having me. Exploring Different Brains is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org.